Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. This is the Elections Edition, where I bring you different candidates from all parties that are running in this year's federal election here in Canada. My guest today is Mark Miller. He is the Minister of Indigenous Services, as well as the outgoing MP and candidate for the Liberal Party of Canada for the riding of Ville-Marie, Le Sud-Ouest, Île-des-Sœurs. I hope you enjoy this conversation. We're here with Mark Miller, Minister Mark Miller, <laughs> uh, incumbent uh, MP and candidate for the Liberal Party of Canada for the riding of Ville-Marie, Le Sud-Ouest, Île-des-Sœurs. Could they not have chosen a longer name there, Mark? I mean, <laughs> does, it, does it even fit in your poster? It was. Uh, this is ancient history, but it was a um, it was an NDP Conservative coalition that picked out the name, which uh, is particularly fitting in this in this context of an election. But uh, that happens to be uh, the facts of history. But, um, you know, it, it's when you when you when I talk to people outside Montreal, they're, they're like, where the heck is that? And I just go home with the haps. We've got more Stanley Cups than all the other ridings put together. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, before we start, Mark, I, I, I need to ask you, uh, how are you? How are things? Uh, very difficult year that we went through. Um, on a personal level, how's it, how's it going? Yeah, you know, it's going, it's going well. Uh, I, um, I became a minister, as you know, in 2019, um, with, uh, already what is a very, very challenging file for, um, one indigenous peoples and, and my number one job, which is to close socioeconomic gaps. Um, and that's outside a, uh, a once in a lifetime, let's hope pandemic. And so, um, you know, within the first few months, there were uh, protests and solidarity movements for the Wet'suwet'en people and and their land rights. Um, there, there, uh, there then broke out shortly thereafter um, a global pandemic. And you know, knowing what we know now about what was then an uncertain virus, something that is would and could have been very devastating to Indigenous peoples, and we have numbers from the CDC in the South to prove out what that's done in certain communities, um, Indigenous communities in in in, in um, in the US. So it was a, a mad scramble um, on top of all the other issues that that, that that are what is Canada with respect to a broken relationship with Indigenous peoples and then a global pandemic and, and, and a rush to keep things safe and to make the machinery of government move uh, as quickly as something that moves ridiculously quickly, which is a virus. You know, they don't take weekends off. And um, I've been scrambling 24-7 with a dedicated team and a, and a big department to keep to help keep people safe and the results are there. Um, I sort of reflect on this and say to myself, if the prime minister asked me when he appointed me to this position, what my ambition was, and I'd said to keep people alive and safe, probably would have been fired on the spot because that's, that's kind of like a duh moment, but um, it has been the number one priority in this context. And then there are all the other ones that I'm sure you want to dig into or talk about what's going on in my writing, but um, they deal with um, issues that yeah. date Canada. So I, it's been, a, it's been a tough year, a very busy year, but it's, um, it's a job that um, I've taken to heart and, um, and, and, and put in the work ethic necessary to, to complete these difficult jobs. Tell me, um, tell me a little bit about becoming a minister. Um, how is that like? Um, is that the file that you had hoped for? Like, you know, when that, when, when that call comes in and, you know, they tell you, uh, all right, Mark, uh, you got to be at this hotel uh, early in the morning. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Don't tell anyone what it is. You're going to meet someone in the, 
underground parking garage. They're going to lead you to a room. Like, you know, when, when, when that call comes in and you're obviously thinking, okay, th- I'm, I'm being called in to be given a, a, a spot in the ministerial caucus. What's going through your mind? Is this what you're thinking or uh, is this what you were hoping for? What was that moment like? Yeah, it's well, it's not it's not an underground garage. Um, it is a place in, in Ottawa, typically, that is outside um, the public scrutiny and public eye. Um, so that becomes a, a choice of location, but it's not as dodgy as a as a as a parking lot in an underground parking but it's yeah well i i, I know because i've heard provincially i mean everything is kept you know uh really really concealed nobody they, they don't want anything to come out i mean i've heard stories where it's like look you're gonna go they're gonna meet you they're gonna you know uh accompany you you're gonna put you in a room like everything has to be so secretive so i don't know how yeah. it is federal. well the the, the there are no secrets in Ottawa. Everyone talks, and that's the bit of the challenge to keep something quite confidential. There is an extensive vetting process that goes on, and those, you know, a number are, are reviewed and selected, and um, that process is extensive with an external panel typically. And then um, there is sort of that magic that is done um, with people that, um, that 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 see where the fit is, and then the offers are made. Um, typically, as as a new minister, you don't have the luxury of choice. Um, rarely as an incoming minister again, do you have the, the luxury of choice, um, despite what people suggest. So, um, you know, I, I, I was given the offer by the prime minister. It was, was with some trepidation. Um, I did reflect on it. I, I knew that this was a massive task. It is something that um, the job, the completion of the work that we need to do to, 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 to move along the path of reconciliation is something that will outlive governments, but we need to put the right conditions in place for um, the closure of what is an insidious form of discrimination, which is that socioeconomic gaps to close, which is my number one task in health, infrastructure, education, um, all these things that give people an equal shot in life and haven't been afforded to Indigenous peoples. And so, you know, you have all these things running through your mind. Um, and um, I, I accept it, obviously. Um, but with some trepidation, and and I think it, it is a reflection of some of the work I've done in understanding of of the files, and then and then comes sort of the 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 massive avalanche of documentation and briefings and extensive work. This was right before an AFN General Assembly a week later, so I had to get briefed up on all. You know, there's there's 600 nations um, across 600 plus First Nations across Canada plus Inuit and um, and Métis. So that is a for any person a steep learning curve and there is no real preparation for a job like this um and it is something that uh, that I've, I, I, I've i've actually it's difficult to say that i uh, i really enjoy my job but given the level of um of um of challenge with the issues and the painful legacy of that this particular department that I run, but I do enjoy my job. Um, I, I love it. Uh, it is something that I enjoy doing. But uh, I feel that my job will be incomplete unless unless I put in place the conditions for the next person to thrive and the next person to succeed. Uh, and then that department, this is a department that needs to change. It's shown extreme nimbleness during a pandemic, so I have a lot of hope. And I see some of the progress that we've made. I see some of the political and um, and financial capital that we've put into it. And I am quite hopeful. Uh, and so I know you asked a different question, but it, 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 is, a, it is a difficult job. I, I wouldn't say I, I hesitated, but I did understand the weight of it when I was offered it. And um, I did accept it. We're going to talk a little bit about the details and the challenges, especially the, the last year uh, that you had to, to face uh, as a Minister of Indigenous Affairs. But before we do that, uh, um, let me just talk a little bit about the, the campaign, the start of this campaign. 
which was met with a little bit of adversity, especially during the first week, um, where you know a lot of people are questioning if whether or not this was the appropriate time to launch a campaign in at the beginning of what seems to be the fourth wave or you know depending on the province and the health experts some suggest that we're already in it um in your opinion was you know politicizing COVID 19 and using that as a pretext to launch a campaign uh, the right thing or was it a mistake how do you how do you view it well Bear in mind, as you know, George, it's, it's August in Quebec where people don't really think about politics um, and then everything ramps up in September. But um, there's a couple of things that sort of have played into the beginning of this campaign. I would say COVID has always been politicized and we've done our best as a government to stick to the medicine, stick to the science. Um, but it is it is a political issue. And we are at a pivotal point in time where we've hit 80% vaccination um, and we need to finish the fight. Um, and there are parties that are willing to um, take a political stance to please their base and compromise finishing the fight. And I think that needs to set into people's minds. Um, the Conservatives were, we've had elections during World Wars. Um, the Conservatives bloc and the NDP have voted for motions that, um, that would have thrown us into an election. So um, knowing that we are a minority, knowing that there are diminishing returns for opposition parties that support a minority government as uh, as time runs on, I, I don't think it's credible to hear any sort of opposition party saying we were ready to support you for the next two years. I suspect, and people will yell from the roofs that I'm wrong, but uh, <laughs> I pretty much know it to be true that we probably would have been in an election in two months anyway. Um, we have a moment in time to finish this fight. This is it. And I think people need to scrutinize the party's platforms in that optic. Uh, you, have, you have a conservative party that uh, is willing to give uh, anti-vaxxers a choice as to whether they compromise the safety of, um, of people that are unvaccinated. And that, um, you know, we all believe in choices, but there's not freedom of consequences. And those consequences in a world pandemic are quite dire. And, and so, so yeah, we're in an election. I think we need to speak, be speaking about these issues and, um, and getting them out. September, particularly in a, in a province like Quebec, that gets really warmed up in September um, politically. What I've seen from my previous campaigns, and I'm sure you'll 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 echo those sentiments having run yourself. Uh, you know, things can move quite quickly. Right. Um, it's interesting what you're saying. I mean, fr from the very beginning, Justin Trudeau came out and kind of drew a line in the sand and said, you know, this is where we stand. We need mandatory vaccinations. We need vaccination passports. Uh, and we saw kind of the effect it had. Uh, I haven't seen such, you know, violent and vulgar uh campaigns and i've had a few i mean it's normal to see people during a campaign yelling and screaming it's fine people are camped in their own ideologies but um what's happening this time around i gotta be honest with you mark i i haven't seen anything like this you know uh i'm just wondering you know i mean you're a lawyer you obviously know this much better than i than i do can you do that can you force and, and we're not talking about our personal i mean i'm vaccinated i got both my vaccinations because i believe in you know the, this whole process but i'm just looking at it from the other people's perspective and i'm trying to take in their argument are we allowed to do that you know i think it's important in a in a democracy such as ours george to, to listen to the other side uh, it's a fundamental tenet of, of our democracy to, to listen to it um when we talk about freedom of expression we've had some very hard and difficult debates over what are those limits um I will defend someone's freedom of, of choice and freedom of expression, um, but if I disagree with it, I have every right and obligation to call it out. Uh, and that's 
the exchange of ideas that we have in a democratic society, I think we've gotten into a situation where there has been some confusion between rights and privileges. And, and those people that take that choice not to get vaccinated uh, have to realize that that comes with consequences. Um, is there a right to travel without certain conditions being fulfilled uh, in Canada on a plane? Um, you know, you can't board a plane without a t-shirt. So come on, uh, this is a world pandemic. People need to get vaccinated. Um, if those who have chosen not to get vaccinated and are ignoring the sciences and, and, and the best uh, analysis of experts out there have to wait a little longer to enjoy some privileges that we've fought so hard as a country for, well, that's the consequence. There's no freedom of consequence. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I, I get it. There has been, there obviously, um, during some of the Moroni campaigns over NAFTA, um, I was still quite young, not a teenager, but there, there were, um, there was that level of vitriol. I do think it, to your point, I do think it gets um, magnified exponentially in a internet era with Twitter and, and Facebook and all that. I'm not a stranger to, um, to protest, as you know. Um, some of these feel manufactured. Like you just, whether they're manufactured or not, there's a weird feeling to them. And I don't know where it's coming from or what the idea is. Is it to destabilize a campaign? Is it to people that actually believe in what they're saying? But it's still there, Mark. It's still there and yeah, it's in large yeah. numbers, right? So, you know, I see these guys yelling at kids and you're like, there's something wrong. And, um, you know, and I'm gonna, and I'm going to call that out. But uh, again, we're in a world pandemic. People's hate, hate health and safety are the number one priority. 80% of us have taken that decision to get vaccinated. Um, and then some of those privileges that we enjoy um, are slowly being restored. And if you, if you want to run a campaign defending, uh, you know, 10, 15% of people that are going to compromise the safety of the rest of us, including our youngest and most vulnerable, those at 11 and under, um, I don't find that acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you a question. I've asked all the other candidates that have been on. Um, we, uh, and again, I've done a lot of campaigns. I'm trying to think if ever I've seen this before, but I, I don't think I have where a party goes into the lead um, in a campaign, we're talking about almost nearly uh, 20 points ahead, and within one week, uh, to lose that lead, um, and especially, uh, you know, within the first week, I, I, I don't think I've seen that. I mean, um, how do you, how do you interpret this? How uh, how is everyone's spirit in your team and in general uh, in the in the Liberal Party? I mean, to, to lose that advance in one week. And look, some may see it, you know, not not that bad because it's still early on in the campaign. There's still another three weeks left. So there's always time to turn it around. And I mean, the Conservatives took the lead of about four or five percent, which, you know, in elections lingo, is it's almost negligible. Right. I, I mean, uh, but there's you know, we're looking at the momentum now. Are they going to be able to maintain it and take it on and, you know, grow that gap? Uh, will the Liberals be able to kind of maintain it there or take back the, the support they had? But in any case, dropping 20 points like that is is quite significant uh, for one week. How, how did you see that? Um, you, know, you know, a lot of us will say we never look at polls. Uh, that's the that's the line. We don't look at polls, but we certainly don't look at them in August, and um, that's really the, the 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 reality of the situation we're in. Um, I think you could you could tear them to pieces all you want. Uh, where trends are going um, is anyone's is anyone's guess. Um, 
you could say liberals were artificially high. I'm not going to speculate. Uh, the reality, I think, I think you'll hear, you'll, you'll, you'll certainly hear uh, folks like Mulroney say they, they, they carved out um, or, or, or eat at eight, eight at someone's lead. I don't, I haven't looked back at the history of things. I actually personally don't look too much at polls. I do look at them, but I do know polling in August is highly unreliable. And I think you do have to fall. You have, you have to do, you have, you have to factor in um, the tragic, tragic events that uh, have overwhelmed everyone in Afghanistan, where they're, you know, we're just realizing again, that there's a, there's a fair failure. Of, um, there's a failure of, of, of moral, um, values of uh, foreign military financial policy over the last two years, 20 years, 50 years, 200 years um, in a country that um, has a notorious history with um, Western powers in it in Afghanistan. And, you know, that seizes the imagination of many people. So, you know, whether that influences the poll, I suspect it probably does. Um, you know, every life that we're getting out of Afghanistan, we've got 300,700. Um, in emergency situations, knowing that we haven't been present militarily in 10 years is, uh, is a real victory. But every life left behind is, uh, is a tragedy. And that's what we're composing with as a government. Um, in my own department, I, I do remain the minister, but I, uh, I, I also have emergency functions that um, are occupying me as well. So that's the challenge of being in government. And that's um, what we've said to Canadians will continue doing. And that's what people expect us to be doing. So the, the reality is, is, is um, we're ready to finish this. Uh, this was a the better better time than 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 perhaps in two months or two months prior to let Canadians decide on an issue that they had no uh, real choice over in the last election because in 2019 we didn't know uh, at all about um, about COVID. Mm-hmm. It's time to finish the fight, and we're ready to do it. And I think people should be paying attention to the next 18 days. Let's talk a little bit about a file that has preoccupied uh, your time quite a bit, uh, obviously, as a Minister of Aboriginal Affairs. Um, this has been a very difficult year. Uh, I mean, tell me a little bit, you know, your reaction following you know, the discovery of all these remains uh, that, that, that kind of surged this year. Uh, how, did you, how did you manage this crisis? Okay, I'm... It's no surprise to anyone that I'm not Indigenous. Um, I was on a phone call with, uh, or a, you know, Zoom, like everyone else is doing these days, with um, Indigenous doctors. And these are people that um, are, it was a Thursday night, I believe. And these are people that are used to dealing with death, um, used to dealing with trauma, particularly with their own people. And I think pretty much every single one of them froze at the breaking of the news in um, about the discoveries in Kamloops. And so that's, and these are people that are highly trained to deal with trauma. And so you can imagine the ripple effect that this has had um, in indigenous communities. There isn't a single indigenous community that hasn't been affected by the news. Um, and as the news keeps coming out, um, people get re-traumatized. It has um, opened up old wounds that people thought had been closed. It's been a, um, a shock to people who knew that was the case all along. And then for the rest of us who were not educated to know about this um, and chose not to read the Truth and Reconciliation Report or even the summary or even understand what was going on, um, 
a shock, but it was not a surprise for those people who had lived it and experienced it and the successive generations that have suffered the trauma from it. Um, right. it. It is complex. It is a very, very painful situation. What worries me is what happens when this all falls um, off sort of the national attention span and, and Indigenous communities are left picking up the pieces. So some of the, we spent, I visited about six sites or five or six sites in the last um, month or so or two months, including one in Lower Post, uh, U, uh, BC, just on the border with the Yukon. Um, I visited the Kamloops site um, and, and Shubenacadie in, um, in Nova Scotia. And each community has its own reality of what that site is, what it represents to people. Um, you have to remember that a lot of communities were, were sent to those sites. So it isn't one community, one site, and their own um, people. It's, it, in the case of Kamloops, it could be several dozen communities that had their children stolen and taken to these institutions that were, in fact, you know, labor, not schools. So, um, you know, the, where do we go from here, I think, is everyone's question. Uh, what people are asking from Canadians is... A little bit of understanding, um, non-Indigenous Canadians, uh, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of compassion. And for those of us that have the privilege to be in power, the financial and political capital to help with the healing and, and closure. And what does that healing look like? Um, sometimes, you know, we, there are still survivors that don't want to speak about their experience. And we need to honor the courage of their silence, as well as the courage of those that are speaking out to the next generations that are demanding answers. Um, and that comes with financial support for mental health, um, tearing down of some of these buildings and building them up into institutions where people can thrive, um, whether it's a multiplex sports complex or um, refurbishing these buildings to preserve the memories. Each community has its own process and we need to respect that. But this process will be much slower than the immediate thirst for answers that we're all looking for. And right. My only conclusion to all this, George, I know I'm taking up all your time, but the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is quite clear in this. We need to let Indigenous communities lead. Um, the federal government, who is um, part responsible for this, can't be the face of this. We need to get out of the way, give the financial resources, and help these communities. Um, but it's not us to come up with the answers. It's really for the communities. Right, because, I mean, for everyone uh, watching, I mean, you know, the, the, these things that we saw, I mean, this, is, this isn't this is something new. I mean, we've known about, you know, the existence of these um of these graves for 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 years if not for decades i mean we've you know we've been made aware of the uh, the atrocious conditions that these communities have had to live in um why has it taken so much time to arrive at this point um i mean that's what boggles a lot of people's minds uh why has it been so complicated um and i, I mean the other thing that i've been thinking is had you know had we not had all these events a couple of months ago happen, uh, would these communities have had uh, any attention at all? I mean, it feels as though, you know, there was finally a spotlight on this issue just because of this, uh, of this situation, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, our, our governments only take action whenever a major issue rises rather than addressing the problem in order to avoid a, uh, you know, a crisis. I don't know. Am I, am I wrong to think that? I mean, it, it, it's a combination of things. I, I, I don't think that's the entire picture. Um, there are situations where governments certainly um, need a kick in the butt to, to, to move, and that's no question. Uh, for, for, for years, and it's important to back up on this particular issue, um, the calls to action on uh, in the TRC 71 through 76 
did call on the federal government, provincial governments to assist communities. Um, we had had budgetary um, allocations in budget 2019 in particular, um, and particular grants to the SSHRCC um, and through Heritage Canada that were supporting a number of these searches. Remember, this is work that's been pain, painstaking. There's obviously been an evolution in the technology. Everyone now is an expert on ground searching technologies, um, but those have evolved. And so there, ha there has been a better ability to get a sense, a sense of the truth. Um, in the case of some of these larger institutions, many of them doing this for, for a long time, listening to the truth of, of the survivors uh, since the 70s, with, uh, I would suggest, not sufficient funding and backing that they were entitled to rightly. Um, there have been many movements to, to preserve some of these institutions and memorialize them. We've moved on that, but arguably, in light of these um, devastating discoveries, not fast enough. And so, to, you know, just, I guess, to have a more nuanced approach to, to your the premise of your question, um, we were moving on it. it. It is slow, but clearly now uh, there is a call to move much quicker, um, but also respect the pace of communities. Um, I've, you know, I, there's an important point that you made in, 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 um, in your introduction to this question, which is how come we didn't know um, and I, I believe we were taught not to know. Uh, I, would, I wasn't raised in school to learn about this, um, and you probably weren't either. I've had recently, you know, very elderly Holocaust survivors approach me and say, how come, you know, this, this pains them because it's reliving some painful memories for them. They're saying, how, how come we didn't know about this? How come we didn't? And I have no answer for it. I, 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 I truly don't. But I do see hope. Um, it, it, we can no longer deny this history, and I think we have, as a as a society, done so. We need to listen to the survivors. Um, we need to give them a place on the on on the, on Canada's stage to speak out, as painful as it is, about what exactly happened, so that we can teach our generations and successive generations. I I take hope in my own kids that are are, are learning this in school. I at a level that I never learned it at. So there's hope. It's slow. But I, I think it is eventually good for this country that we all know it. One of the themes that I do want to address, and, and it, it isn't coming out as much in um, in, the, in, in sort of um, some of the mainstream analysis I, I, I read, is um, is the message of hope that I've come out of every community hearing um, what where we go from here, and, and it is a fundamental belief of hope from Indigenous communities that we can do better. One of those hopes is in education. Um, making sure that schools are built on reserve and culturally appropriate teachings um, in the spirit of self-determination is lifted up. I've been to a number of communities where we're opening up new schools and that is the future. And we're not reproducing a broken model of shipping kids off reserve. They can learn in, they can learn, um, in their own environment, their own culture, their own languages. And that, um, that increases factually graduation rates, but it also plays an essential role in reclaiming identity, which we've denied communities for so long. Uh, Mark, let's talk a little bit about the economy, uh, and I'm sure you're getting uh, heavily questioned about this uh, in your writing or, you know, during your door-to-door. -door. We're very far from promises that were made in 2015, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, running mild deficits and balancing the books in 2019. Um, of course, you know, nobody expected the pandemic to hit, so we're f we've, we further indebted our, 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 our population. How can our how can your electorate? How can the how can the population trust 
that you are the right party for the job when all they've seen are you know record deficits, uh, record debt, uh, no indication of any return to to zero deficit. I mean, the finance ministers have been uh, quite good at avoiding uh, that question. Um, is there really a plan to get us out of this? Uh, and if there is, do you think it'll work? Can you uh, inspire that confidence again um, to the to the electorate? I think it's safe to say, George, that every day we continue to be in a global pandemic. Um, we continue to dig a fiscal hole. Um, the only way out is to finish the fight and to um, have the backs of Canadians like we've had up to now. We, clearly, no one anticipated a global pandemic. And luckily, the fiscal track as compared to similarly situated OECD countries was great. And in, in low interest rate environments, which I agree don't last forever, um, it, borrowing is an important instrument to get um, growth that can then in turn retire the debt, pay off, um, pay off deficits. And that's a key fiscal measure that we've um, that we've used. There has been this, this mantra that is um, that leads inevitably to slow growth, that um, debt is bad at all costs. And you know, the Prime Minister defied that in 2015 and people said, you know what, he's right. Um, but it has to be justified, you're right. And the clearest justification right now is we haven't finished the fight. So when you have parties uh, that are willing to toy with, with, uh, with what is an economic challenge, simply to please their base, I think that is a real threat to the economy because there's nothing worse than a shutdown. Now, we as a government stepped in in the place of civil society and private business, which is not the place of government. You only do these in exceptional circumstances, global recessions um, or world pandemics. And that was the right thing to do. Um, the whiplash effect is that there are um, unanticipated consequences and these are hammer type measures for what is often needed as a surgical solution that the government isn't necessarily good at, at, um, at replacing or simulated instead of private, um, private capital. Now, there will have to be adjustments as we are moving into a reopening phase, um, rationing back of supports, tailoring of supports. We know that the hospitality and tourism business will hurt longer, um, but always in a way that, um, that, that is fiscally sound. Now, um, my proposal to you and to Canadians is that getting out of this pandemic is the number one economic priority, um, as opposed to going back to old dogma that doesn't reflect the fact that um, the health and safety of people uh, is so key. It's something that we've, we quite easily forget outside pandemics. Uh, I know you got to go. We're, we're going to wrap it up, Mark. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's happening on the ground in Ville-Marie, uh, Le Sud-Ouest, Ile des Sœurs. What are the challenges that uh, that need your attention over there? What 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 are you um, what are you working on, or what do you look forward to continue uh, to work on? Should you get reelected? Yeah, and I'm and I'm glad you asked that, George, because like any urban center, um, uh, child, family, uh, poverty, and and cost of living is um, is a huge issue. Uh, from day one, from 2015, with the Czech Canada Child Benefit, we have um, got money into those who need it most, into families, into pockets of, of, of Canadians, directly from the federal government. People always say that in, in, in Quebec in particular, the federal government is far from them directly. And this has brought us closer to them, and it is something that we needed to do, recognizing that there were inequities. Those inequities um, 
continue to be there and we continue to invest in families. Um, some of our initiatives on childcare across the, across the country are a reflection that we've had on, 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 on workforce equity, particularly women being able to leverage their, um, le- le- leverage their workforce and not being unduly prejudiced by having to raise children uh, in, in a way that you, know, you and I wouldn't, um, as a matter of, uh, of, uh, uh, of course, haven't had traditionally to do. Um, those are things that we need to keep working on. It's actually quite fiscally sound for the economy. Now, housing is a big issue. There's been real inflationary pressure in the cost of housing. Um, our, our government was the first in a generation to invest in housing. We, we reached a deal with the Legault government that has a primary jurisdiction on housing in the height of the pandemic to invest 3.7 billion over 10 years in a global in a, in a joint housing strategy. That's good news, um, but we're not we're not really stopping there. We've deployed throughout the pandemic a rapid housing strategy of a billion dollars and are re-upping that in, in budget 2021. In addition to a number of pretty exciting platform strategies uh, that aren't that aren't gimmicky like some of the other parties in making sure that people do have access to housing uh, directly for the next few years. And this is the federal government's involvement in things in a, in a respectful fashion, of course but making sure that we are recognizing the fact that there is pressure, um, whether it's foreign speculators that don't intend to live here or blind bidding, we need to be able to be um, working to make sure that that, that, that pressure isn't on um, people that really should be having a, a roof over their head. Uh, those challenges need to be um, need to be matched as well by, by, by the cities and by the provinces, and we need to work respectfully with them to do that, which, which, which is what we've done. Um, but that is certainly something, cost of living, housing, um, health, and Again, I'll go back to this. We need to finish the fight against COVID. And this is the only government that's put forward a platform that really recognizes that and has that as its number one focus. Mark, I appreciate your time as always. I know you have uh, a busy schedule. The campaign uh, is still uh, is still, uh, still going, still active. I mean, like we said, there's still three weeks. Anything can happen um, all the way until the very end. So good luck to you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thanks, George. Hopefully next time we can do it in your car again. <laughs> I hope I hope we don't screw up like last time. Okay. I have to <laughs> All right, Mark. Thank take you. care.